Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 7 Little Gidding is a small, remote village in England where there was a chapel uh, built by Nicholas Farrar and his family when they founded a small uh, Anglican religious community, community of prayer in the 17th century. The community was founded in 1625 and uh, broken up uh, by parliamentary edict in 1647 uh, and finally destroyed by the forces of Cromwell shortly thereafter, and the chapel was rebuilt in the 19th century. And Eliot had visited there in 1936, and uh, as with his visits to um, East Coker and Burt Norton, it becomes the locale for his final uh, meditation in the quartets. The story of the chapel at Little, Little Gidding is really a parable of the story of the church. Uh, there are moments when it all comes together, as we say. And uh, the community is, uh, is a prayerful community dedicated in the proper way to, the, to uh, the Christian pursuits. And then it's overtaken by history. Uh, something, uh, the historical forces sweep by and uh, it's uh, marginalized, destroyed, relegated to obscurity, confused, uh, but it sits there and sooner or later it's rebuilt. The chapel is rebuilt. Uh, but then it's still it may sit on the margins of things for some time. And I think Eliot, I don't want to be too didactic with the poem, but I think Eliot could be said to, to have symbolized by the chapel at Little Gidding what we might call the true church as opposed to what uh, Charles Williams calls the apparent church. And it's the search for the true church that uh, is, seems to be uh, set in motion in this poem. There's another pattern in the four quartets, which we've mentioned before, which is the pattern of the four basic elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Burnt Norton's uh, element was air, and earth was the element of East Coker, and the dry salvages element was water, and the little Giddings element is fire. Eliot has dealt with all these images in his earlier poems. But because this one is concerned with fire primarily, I want to go back to a couple of things that he has said on that score earlier. The first is from uh, The Wasteland, a section called the Fire Sermon, taken from Buddhist Fire, fire Sermon. And you'll, those of you who were here when we were studying the Wasteland will remember this section because we spent a good deal of time on it. But I'll just quote a few passages to, uh, to refresh your memory about it uh, and then uh, quote its concluding passage. The first lines I'm going to quote are from the, uh, the little... Uh, sexual rendezvous between the uh, typist home at tea time and the small house agent's clerk, uh, an emotionally empty uh, sexual rendezvous uh, which uh, ends very abruptly 
And uh, here are the lines uh, in which its, uh, its conclusion is uh, described. The meal is ended. She is bored and tired. He endeavors to engage her in caresses which still are unreproved if undesired. Flushed and decided, he assaults at once. Exploring hands encounter no defense. His vanity requires no response and makes a welcome of indifference. And after the brief sexual encounter, he bestows one final patronizing kiss and gropes his way, finding the stairs unlit. She turns and looks a moment in the glass, hardly aware of her departed lover. Her brain allows one half-formed thought to pass. Well, now that's done, and I'm glad it's over. There's been very little mention of fire in this sermon. Uh, attention is called in the fire sermon to the river, but not to fire. But at the very end of the fire sermon, uh, we get these lines. To Carthage then I came, burning, 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 burning. O Lord, thou pluckest me out. O Lord, thou pluckest, burning. Well, the lines uh, are the to Carthage then I came burning lines are from Augustine's Confessions, and it represents the point in Augustine's life when he uh, leaves behind him a licentious life and takes up the spiritual life. What I want to call attention to is how this fits with another thing that Eliot had said, that uh, the fire is roses, but the smoke is briars. The fire sermon is about hell, uh, but it is about hell to which one is uh, so accommodated uh, that one doesn't recognize it as hell. That is to say, we, one might say by reading the fire sermon that in hell the fire does not flame, it only smolders. In purgatory it flames. The purgatorial fire is the transformational fire. The hellfire is the stagnant fire, the fire of no change, of no transformation, of no real encounter, of no risk. So the, so the smoke is briars, but the flame is roses. Well, I bring that into play just because we're going to be talking about fire again, and we're going to be also talking about hell and purgatory again, because I, Elliot is setting those... I think, uh, before us. As I said, in East Coker, in, uh, in uh, Burnt Norton, the first of the quartets, we'll, get to, we'll, we'll turn to the, the religious theme of, of that, or, or one of them, uh, in a few minutes. Uh, but putting that aside for the time being, it, it doesn't have as explicit a religious theme as East Coker and Dry Salvages. The explicit religious theme in East Coker, that is to say, the Section 2 lyric, is about the crucifixion. And uh, the corresponding lyric in Dry Salvages is about the Annunciation. In Little Getting, it is the Pentecost that is that takes the central place, the the moment in the in in history that's uh, that the poem reflects on is the moment of Pentecost and its consequences and its aftermath. Now Pentecost is the is the day 
uh, celebrated in the Christian uh, calendar, when the apostles gathered in confusion and bewilderment and dismay, you might say in the dark day of the year, in the aftermath of the crucifixion, one reads the uh, Pentecost story and we we realize that uh, uh, whatever, whatever, however we understand these resurrection uh, experiences, uh, 50 days after the crucifixion there was a good deal of bewilderment uh, lingering. And Pentecost is the moment when uh, it clarified and the bewilderment was turned into, not only into faith, but into an articulate faith, into a faith that could use a universal language to speak a universal truth. And Eliot is a poet who has been striving to speak a universal language about a universal truth. And so Pentecost is, is, uh, is the moment when that is to occur. Historically, Pentecost is the birth of the church. It's the beginning of the church understanding itself as church, as a community of, of uh, proclaimers of a truth. But I think also Pentecost represents a personal birth of the church, at least in the way that Eliot is using it. Pentecost is the day on which the fire comes down, the Spirit comes down like tongues of fire, like tongues of flame. So the fire image is associated with Pentecost uh, in that the Spirit becomes flame-like. So it is not the stagnant flame of hell, nor is it really the transformative flame of purgatory, but it's the inspirational flame of Pentecost. So all of these are going to be called into play in this poem. Uh, the the, in, the uh, fire of inspiration is Pentecost. Now there's one other fire to add to these. We have the infernal fire, the fire of hell, the fire of purgatory, and the fire of Pentecost. And there's one other to uh, uh, acknowledge and, um, and then have to dispense with sooner or later, and that is Heracliton fire. Heraclitus, the uh, Greek philosopher, had seen fire as the... Uh, he, he understood the four uh, fundamental elements, earth, air, fire, and water, but understood fire as the primary transformative one the one to which all the others returned and from which all were reborn again. Uh, Heracliton fire is natural fire. Heracliton, Heracliton fire is systematic fire. I don't have to consent to it. I don't have to uh, come into concert with it in any way. I don't have to suffer it. I don't have... It just... It takes care of the process. Uh, it, it's, it's automatic transformation. Heracliton fire. Uh, from a Christian point of view, one would say that the fall has made that unavailable now. There, there's no more automatic transformation. All automatic transformations go downhill. All automatic transformations are entropic. It's not available anymore. Uh, Evolution is not going to pull us out of it. Not the human condition. Not the human condition. We're beyond that. So Heraclitan fire is not uh, capable of dealing with the situation. Finally, it will come to two fires, the fire of hell and the fire of love. And the task, of course, will be to go from one to the other, or to move in the, from one towards the other. And for the Christian tradition, and I think Eliot specifically 
Now, the way to do that is to experience first the Pentecostal fire and then the purgatorial fire. So all this fire talk, let me uh, put, put that aside for a second because uh, we're going to have to now uh, talk about fire and ice as the poem begins. Before I quote the first lines of the poem, I want to quote uh, a, uh, a few lines of Frost that compare with it somewhat. These are taken from a Frost poem entitled Two Tramps at Mud Time. The sun was warm, but the wind was chill. You know how it is with an April day. When the sun is out and the wind is still, you're one month on in the middle of May. But if you so much as dare to speak, a cloud comes over the sunlit arch. A wind comes off a frozen peak, and you're two months back in the middle of March. Now, Frost is not writing about the weather any more than T.S. Eliot is writing about the weather. He's writing about the human condition and the, and the human mystery. He says, If you so much as dare to speak, a cloud comes over the sunlit arch. He, as a poet, knows what it's like to dare to speak in that, in that moment when suddenly spring is there and you speak and the cloud comes and you're back in winter again. And what we're looking for is a, is a speech that, that uh, doesn't have that feature to it. Pentecostal speech, you see, that doesn't uh, throw us back, but a speech that can speak a universal language, uh, can speak a universal truth in a universal language. But really the reason I read this is because the Frost poem pictures a, uh, a contrast, a tension between spring and winter in which... Uh, two steps forward, one step back, or some kind of tension between them. They, they overlap. But the Frost poem is not a paradox, does not present a paradox. Winter and spring still are separate. They're just, they're right next to each other, that's the thing. They're only separated by a moment, as long as it takes for a cloud to come over, you see. In other words, they're not separated by a longer period of time, the way we think of gradual transformation of winter and spring. Frost, Frost wants to announce, no, you can go from one to the other like that. So uh, that's his announcement to the world. Eliot has something deeper and more profound to announce to the world, and that is a paradoxical truth that they happen at the same moment. So his poem, Little Gidding, begins with the remarkable line, and remarkable, I say, because when we get to the end of the poem, we'll be able to come back and read this line and have in our minds and hearts the whole poem clone right there before us. So it's, uh, it's a, when we first read it, it doesn't have that effect, but as we go through the poem, we'll be able to come back and get the whole thing from this first line. Midwinter spring is its own season. It's, an, it's outside of the seasonal uh, events and the seasonal cycle. It's something other. It is not 
as with the Frost poem, involved with the tension and the interplay uh, and, the, and the process from one to the other that we find in nature, the tension between these polarities that we find in nature, or that we find, for instance, in the I Ching. The I Ching is a masterful study of the way in which the opposites interplay and uh, move from one to the other and back again. Uh, but this goes beyond that. This is talking about a, pl- about a moment in which it is all paradoxical. Midwinter spring is its own season, season number five. Sempt eternal, though sodden toward sundown. Sempt eternal simply means eternal, but it, it's, a, it's a word that Eliot got from the uh, Paradiso of Dante. And uh, throughout here, he's, he is uh, uh, echoing the poets that have helped uh, shape his own vision of things. Sempt eternal, though sodden toward sundown, suspended in time between pole and tropic. So between the heat and the ice. When the short day is brightest with frost and fire, the brief sun flames the ice on pond and ditches. In windless cold that is the heart's heat, reflecting in a watery mirror a glare that is blindness in the early afternoon. So here in these few lines we have all of its set motions at the same time. Fire and ice, tropic and pole, um, the short day, the shortest day, the darkest day, but the brightest day. And glow more intense than blaze of branch or brazier stirs the dumb spirit. No wind but Pentecostal fire in the dark time of the year. That's the birth of the church, or if in the life of a person, the birth of the church. The Pentecostal fire in the dark time of the year. Between melting and freezing, the soul's sap quivers. The quivering of the soul's sap is that uh, quickening, that stirring into life. There, There is no earth smell or smell of living thing. This is the springtime but not in time's covenant. Now the hedgerow is blanched for an hour with transitory blossom of snow, a bloom more sudden than that of summer, neither budding nor fading. Not in the scheme of generation. So the blossom is really the blossom of snow. So to, to, to have you ever had a moment... Uh, when you look up and you and you feel that uh, the the blooming is the blooming of snow, that the snow has begun to bloom, that the snow on the hedges, which had the very second before depicted the the coldness and uh, bleakness of the moment is suddenly recognized as blooming. It's that kind of thing he's calling attention to. 
not in the scheme of generation. To say it's not in the scheme of generation is a way of saying it's it does it has no purpose. We all, because we live in the cause and effect uh, order of things uh, overly much, uh, we immediately uh, want to find out its purpose. Now, it, it obviously will it will have, and Elliot is going to explore uh, the effects that it will have, but to assign a purpose to it is to miss it. But it's only the useless that can redeem us. So it's not in the scheme of generation. It's not something you can use. Simon Bay had a passage, I remember exactly how she put it, of course it's the English translation, but she said, um, there comes a moment when uh, when one's pain is, is uh, a com- completely transformed by the consolation of the redemption. But the consolation leaves the pain perfectly intact. Because it's not in the scheme of generation. It's a breaking in. And this first movement ends with the, the I think, stunning lines. Where is the summer, the unimaginable zero summer? Well, you see, so what has happened, and it's just these first few lines, is as he has done so often before in the quartets, Eliot has called attention to a moment. He's preoccupi- preoccupied throughout the quartets with moments. He, he diagnoses the human problem in terms of our, our captivity in the world of chronological time. And, and slaves to chronological time as we are, we know nothing about Kairos time, about, about, the, about the timeless moment that breaks in on time, about how an ordinary moment in the flow of time can suddenly uh, become something uh, that uh, reveals eternity. And we don't, because we don't attend to that, the saints attend to it, but we attend to it very poorly. Uh, so what we, we experience, the hints and guesses, but he's constantly calling attention to the moment. Well, once again, he calls attention to the moment. And this time, it's the moment of, it's the Pentecostal moment. It's the moment of, of, uh, of Pentecostal fire, inspirational fire. And it happens at the darkest, coldest time. After I have had this moment, and only after I've had this moment, do I begin to ask about the unimaginable zero summer. And we begin to have a longing, a hankering, for some other moment, some other place, some other time frame. And so we are, as Walker Percy says, on to something. And Percy says only the people that are on to something uh, are, have something to share with you. Find the people who are on to something. It's unimaginable because it's not a product of the imagination. Eliot had, in the earlier quartets, had said we must experience the uh, the uh, evacuation of the world of fancy. We can't rely on the muses anymore. This is a he's not relying on the muses. He's he is he's now a, a Christian poet in the sense that uh, he he is uh, he he knows that the universal language 
that speaks the universal truth can only be spoken by uh, one inspired by the Pentecost and not one inspired by the Muses. So it's the unimaginable zero summer, not a product of the romantic imagination. Now, because this moment is a Pentecostal moment, sets in motion the movement toward the church, the first movement toward the church is the question, where is the unimaginable zero summer? That's the first stirring. That's One could say that's the, the first moment when uh, one has responded to the gravitational pull of the true church. You understand I'm using this true church thing to, to refer to a mystery and not to refer to uh, an institution or a denomination or a, you, you understand what I'm talking about. So the question, where is the unimaginable zero summer, is the first indication that the, that the being has responded to the gravitational feel of the church. So I would like to read Philip Larkin's Church Going. Once I'm sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting, seats, and stone, and little books, sprawlings of flowers, cut for Sunday, brownish now, some brass and stuff up at the holy end, the small, neat organ, and a tense, musty, unignorable silence, brood God knows how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence. Move forward, run my hand around the font. From where I stand, the roof looks almost new, cleaned or restored. Someone would know I don't. Mounting the lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce, Here endeth much more loudly than I'd meant. The echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door, I sign the book, donate an Irish sixpence, reflect the place was not worth stopping for. Yet, stop I did. In fact, I often do. And always end much at a loss like this, wondering what to look for, wondering, too, when churches fall completely out of use, what we shall turn them into if we shall keep a few cathedrals chronically on show, their parchment, plate, and picks in locked cases, and let the rest rent-free to rain and sheep, shall we avoid them as unlucky places? Or, after dark, will dubious women come to make their children touch a particular stone, pick simples for a cancer, or on some advised night see walking a dead one, power of some sort or other will go on in games and riddles seemingly at random and what remains when disbelief has gone grassy weedy pavement brambles buttress sky a shape less recognizable each week a purpose more obscure I wonder who will be the last the very last to seek this place for what it was one of the crew that tap and jot and know what rude lofts were, some ruined bibber randy for antique, or Christmas addict counting on a whiff 
of gown and bands and organ pipes and myrrh? Or will he be my representative, bored, uninformed, knowing the ghostly silt dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb shrub because it held unspilt so long and equitably what sense is found only in separation, marriage and birth and death and thoughts of these, for whom was built this special shell? For though I know I've no idea what this accoutred frosty barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here. A serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognized and robed as destiny, and that much never can be obsolete, since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious and gravitating with it to this ground, which he once heard was proper to grow wise in if only that so many dead lie round. I'll return maybe to a passage or two in this poem in a, in a, in a minute, but I, the, the lines that could be an introduction to the next part of Little Gidding are these. Since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious and gravitating with it to this ground. It's that Pentecostal moment that stirs the hunger for the unimaginable zero summer which is, a, which is a, a hunger that has no direction, no focus, but it's the beginning of the hunger for the true church as an available approach to the church and what it's like for them and what their resistances are. And he knows more or less the way in which it can be approached. If you came this way, taking the route you would be likely to take, from the place you would be likely to come from, he knows where we are and he knows where the, the uh, chapel is. And so he knows more or less the route we'll have to take. And he's describing it. And it's the same, he says. If you came in May time, you would find the hedges white again in May with voluptuary sweetness. Now, Elliot had visited Little Gidding in May time. But you will notice in line four of this of this movement, uh, the May time is, May in that line is not capitalized. If you came in May time, you would find the hedges white again in May, capitalized May, with voluptuary sweetness. What is the May time? What is the approach to the church that I take in the May time? Well, it's the approach that I may take. Well, I may or I may not. See, I, I, I approach the church from that point of view. It's a it's a casual approach. It's a happy time of the year. There's, uh, the, there's, the hedges are in bloom, voluptuary sweetness. I go in May time. I go because, because uh, well, it's a, it's a wonderful congregation and we, and we have nice visits afterwards. Or I go because I'd like my children to be exposed to the tradition. Or I go because, who knows why I go. But I go in May time. So there's that. One goes in May time. It would be the same at the end of the journey if you came at night like a broken king. Charles I 
after losing two decisive battles to the Cromwellian forces, retreated to, in both the military and religious sense, to Little Gidding, the chapel at Little Gidding, shortly before he was arrested and beheaded. So, um, it would be the same at the end of the journey if you came at night like a broken king, the way Charles I did. If you came as a refugee, as a refugee from history. Remember we talked when we were doing the, the uh, Isaac Denison short stories and Flannery O'Connor short stories, we talked about refugees from history. So if you're a refugee from history, it would be the same. If you came by day, not knowing what you came for, it would be the same. By day, not knowing what you came for, as a tourist, really, sort of to, to check it out, to look it over, but not really knowing why, just feeling sort of like, well, I'd like to go. I'd like to, I'd li well, why not? It would be the same, because the path into, finally, the, the path into the true church is the same for all of those. It's the, the requirements are the same. It would be the same when you leave the rough road and turn behind the pigsty to the dull facade and the tombstone. So that's how you get there. You, do you want instructions? The instructions are, you leave the rough road and you turn behind the pigsty, a turn which has been known to take some time to make. The psychotherapists say you can spend about ten years making that turn. You leave the rough road and turn behind the pigsty to the dull facade and the tombstone. And you see, the one's disinclined to make the turn behind the pigsty uh, if one uh, knows that it's just a dull facade and tombstone <laughs> on the other side of that turn. It would be, we'd more likely take it if we were told that it was the uh, yellow brick road on the other side of the, of the turn. But it's the dull facade because that's because we are worldlings. And what we see when we look at it, and what we see when we look at the true church is the dull facade and the tombstone. A reminder of mortality, the tombstone is the tombstone of Nicholas Farrar, the founder of this little community. Each of these kind of little places has its saint as a founder, and his, he's the one for little getting. So I'm going to keep recapitulating as we go along. The Pentecostal moment, unbidden, came at a, in, in, the, in the dead of winter with a, with a revelation, which is that winter, that the spring that you long for can reveal itself to you in the dead of winter. It's not the alternative to winter. It's not what happens after winter. The, the mystics over and over and over again say, it's at the dark, it's during the dark night of the soul. It's during the cloud of unknowing. It's in the, it's in 
the deepest, darkest places that the truth would be revealed to you. So a Pentecostal uh, moment sets in motion a longing for the unimaginable zero summer. And the next thing we know, we're moving either in the May time or as a broken king or in the daytime not knowing why toward this place. And the directions are behind the pigsty to the dull facade and the tombstone. And what you thought you came for is only a shell, a husk of meaning from which the purpose breaks only when it is fulfilled, if at all. Either you had no purpose or the purpose is beyond the end you figured and is altered in fulfillment. Now, that's a wonderful thing because what that says is that it is a tremendous adventure. That I don't know why, to put it, to put it in its simplest and silliest way, I don't know why I go to church. The, the truth this poem speaks is that you, one doesn't know. I tell myself why. I go because I, uh, there's, there, there are reasons. I, I mean, I can think of reasons. But none of them are really the reason. There are other places which also are the world's end. Some at the sea jaws or over a dark lake in a desert or a city. But this is the nearest in place and time now and in England. Now, Elliot is looking for a place that symbolizes the true church, the spirit of the church. Which spirit has been eclipsed in the modern world? And he says you can, there, are, there are places one can go and feel the spirit of the ancient tradition. But they're marginalized. It's all been marginalized. They're all these little outback places that nobody pays attention to anymore because that's the nature of the situation. And of course, one has to get past the dull facade, which is to say to cross the threshold. And the next passage in the poem, I think, implies uh, that one has crossed the threshold whatever that might mean symbolically. If you came this way, taking any route, starting from anywhere, at any time, or at any season, it would always be the same. You would have to put off sense and notion. Well, see, that's the problem. Uh, he, know, he's, he knows his contemporaries. He knows that when we show up there, our heads are filled with sense and notion. That And the f sense and notion our heads are filled with are, are, are those that will prevent us from experiencing what's there to experience. So it will always be the same. You have to put off sense and notion. And then he gets to the point of that. You are not here to verify, instruct yourself, 
or inform curiosity or carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. Now, isn't that it? And the sense and notion is partly cultural and partly personal. It's cultural because of a cultural bias against entering into that mystery. It's partly personal because as a child we sat through interminable, dull and misleading sermons. Or whatever. Or we were, or we were raised under, uh, the, uh, under people who thought that Christianity was a moral system. Whatever it is. And we have these biases, cultural and personal biases, that prevent us from... So when, we find, when the gravitational pull finally does begin to break through those, those resistances and pulls us almost against our will across the threshold, there we stand determined to check it out. <laughs> See? <clears throat> to verify, inform curiosity, carry reports, instruct ourselves. We're not here to do that, he says. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. And prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind or the sound of the voice praying. And what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. So now we come back to another Pentecostal image, tongued with fire. And where does the, where does the fire, the tongues of fire, where does it come from? The language of the dead. The, the inherited tradition. The truths spoken through the members of the traditional community. I mentioned earlier Heraclite and fire. Here's what Heraclitus says. Fire lives in the death of air. Air lives in the death of fire. Water lives in the death of earth. Earth lives in the death of water. So that it's a, it's a system that takes care of itself. It's a natural transformative process. Eliot would say, as would others, that the result of the fall is that it is no longer available. That kind of transformation process is no longer available. Both uh, Eliot and W.H. Auden knew that. I'd like to quote the Aud a, a little Auden passage about that, if I may. Auden says, it's the four, he has the four faculties, which are earth, air, fire, and water, but in the Jungian uh, dispensation, the Jungian breakdown, they are intuition, uh, thinking, feeling, sensation, intuition. So uh, Auden uses both of those. And uh, he indicates that they have fallen asunder. So the four faculties are speaking. And they say in unison in Auden's poem, Over the life of man we watch and wait, the four who manage his fallen estate. We who are four were once but one before his act of rebellion. 
We were himself when his will was free. His error became our chance to be, to be separate. Powers of air and fire, water and earth, into our hands is given man from his birth. And then they speak separately, and the first to speak is intuition. As a dwarf in the dark of his belly, I rest. In the fallen state, intuition becomes, once it falls asunder from the other three, becomes a dwarf in the dark of his belly. And feeling, a nymph, I inhabit the heart in his breast. Feeling becomes a nymph. Sensation, a giant at the gates of his body, I stand. And thought, his dreaming brain is my fairyland. They've all become impotent and all fallen asunder. And the Heracliton version of them is earth, air, fire, and water. So for those, in a sense, this first part of section two is Eliot saying, if you think there is a systemic solution to this, if you think you can find a system in which you do not have to struggle to be good, forget it. The Heracliton process is no longer available to us. We are fallen creatures. And here's how he pictures it. Ash on an old man's sleeve is all the ash the burnt roses leave. Dust in the air suspended marks the place where a story ended. So dust is, the air is filled, the, the air is polluted by the dust of the, of the burnout house. Dust inbreathed was a house, the wall, the wainscoat, and the mouse. The death of hope and despair, this is the death of air. And then he turns to the, to the dry salvages imagery and, and in a way, the wasteland imagery. There are flood and drought over the eyes and in the mouth. Dead water and dead sand contend for the upper hand. The parched, eviscerate soil gapes at the vanity of toil, laughs without mirth. This is the death of earth. And then finally, water and fire. Now, water and fire are the two key transformative energies of the Christian dispensation. Water and fire succeed the town, the pasture, and the weed. Water and fire deride the sacrifice that we denied. Water and fire shall rot the marred foundations we forgot of sanctuary and choir. This is the death of water and fire. The church itself is part of that profound impotence at one level of itself. Water and fire succeed the town, the pasture, and the weed. See, water and fire representing the church there. But look what happens. Water and fire deride the sacrifice that we deny. Water and fire shall rot the marred foundations we forgot of sanctuary and choir. This is the death of water and fire. The next part of the second section of Little Gidding is in Tercerima, or as close to Tercerima as one can expect something to be in the English language. Tercerima is Dante's rhyme scheme for uh, the Divine Comedy. And uh, Eliot, in a later writing, uh, 
prose writing indicated that this passage was the most demanding thing he'd ever written in in uh, in verse. And from that same commentary, he says the following. Twenty years after writing The Wasteland, I wrote in Little Gidding a passage which was intended to be the nearest equivalent to a canto of the Inferno or the Purgatorio in style as well in, as content that I could achieve. The intention, of course, was the same as with my allusion to Dante in the Wasteland, to present to the mind of the reader a parallel by means of contrast between the Inferno and the Purgatorio, which Dante visited, and a hallucinated scene after an air raid. So, three things are before us. Hell, Purgatory, and London during an air raid. And they're superimposed on one another. And there's a reference to two specific characters the two specific characters in Dante's journey, one he met in the Inferno and one he met in the Purgatorio, both are met where the lustful are being punished in the Inferno and purged of their lust in the Purgatorio. But in the Purgatorio, of course, the purging for lust is to step into the fire. In hell, the punishment is to try to avoid the fire. And in Purgatory, the purging is to step into the fire. And again, you see this sort of connection between the, the fire of hell and the fire of love. Elliot was a fire warden during the bombing, which meant that he would occasionally walk the streets of his, of his ward all night. And this takes one of those night walks as its point of reference. In the uncertain hour before the morning, near the ending of interminable nights, at the recurrent end of the unending, after the dark dove with the flickering tongue had passed below the horizon of his homing, while the dead leaves still rattled on like tin over the asphalt where no other sound was, between three districts whence the smoke <coughs> arose, I met one walking. Well, before we go on, let's go back to this. After the dark dove with the flickering tongue had passed below the horizon of his homing, you have a crude parody of the Pentecostal uh, moment, uh, the moment of the dove, the, the inspiration of the dove. Only now it's the German bomber, the dark dove, dove with the flickering tongue, that is to say, the, the, the guns firing. while dead leaves still rattled on like tin over the asphalt, that is to say, little pieces of shrapnel hitting the streets as he's walking uh, during the bombing raid. No other sound between three districts whence the smoke arose. Now, the three districts are Hell, Purgatory, and London. And Elliot is having a difficult time determining which one he's in. And in this circumstance, he says, I met one walking, as Dante met in the Inferno and in the Purgatorio. Loitering and hurried, again a reference to a compound figure who is both an infernal figure, loitering, and a purgatorial figure, hurrying. 
as if blown towards me like the metal leaves before the urban dawn wind unresisting. And as I fixed upon the downturned face, that pointed scrutiny with which we challenged the first met stranger in the waning dark, I caught the sudden look of some dead master whom I had known, forgotten, half recalled, both one and many, in the brown-baked features, the eyes of a familiar compound ghost, both intimate and unidentifiable. And this compound ghost, familiar compound ghost, is both one and many. It is Homer and Dante and Shakespeare and Dunn and Milton, etc. And it is in the theological area, Paul and Augustine and Aquinas and St. John of the Cross, etc. It's the representative of the tradition, both literary and religious. But it is also both intimate and unidentifiable. It's a vague composite of the tradition. The the next lines are, So I assumed a double part and cried and heard another's voice cry, What? Are you here? So he is both part of the ghost and the one who is encountering the ghost. Uh, This is what... uh, Derek Traversy calls an intimate self-confrontation. Now, to pick up the, le- the echo in uh, Dante's Inferno, uh, here's what happens when Dante meets Brunetto Latini, his, his, uh, his former master. I was recognized by one who seized the hem of my skirt and said, Wonder of wonders, you! And I, when he stretched out his arm to me, searched his baked brown features closely. You see, uh, Elliot uses brown baked features here. Till at last I traced his image from my memory in spite of the burnt crust and bending near to put my face closer to his, at last I answered, Sir Brunetto, are you here? What? Are you here in hell? What? Are you here? although we were not. I was still the same, knowing myself, yet being someone other, and he a face still forming. Yet the words sufficed to compel the recognition they preceded, and so, compliant to the common wind, too strange to each other for misunderstanding, in concord at this intersection time of meeting nowhere, no before and after, we trod the pavement in a dead patrol. I said, the wonder that I feel is easy, yet ease is cause of wonder, therefore speak. I may not comprehend, may not remember. So we've been set up for this this oracular voice now, I am not eager to rehearse my thought and theory which you have forgotten. These things have served their purpose, let them be. So with your own, and pray they be forgiven by others, as I pray you to forgive both bad and good, 
Last year's fruit is eaten, and the full-fed beast shall kick the empty pail. Last year's words belong to last year's language, and next year's words await another voice. But, as the passage now presents no hindrance to the spirit unappeased and peregrine, between two worlds become much like each other, so I find words I never thought to speak in streets I never thought I should revisit when I left my body on a distant shore. Since our concern was speech, and speech impelled us to purify the dialect of the tribe, and urge the mind to aftersight and foresight, let me disclose the gifts reserved for age to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. First, the cold friction of expiring sense without enchantments, offering no promise but bitter tastelessness of shadow fruit as body and soul begin to fall asunder. Second, the conscious impotence of rage at human folly and the laceration of laughter at what ceases to amuse. And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all you have done and been, the shame of motives late revealed, and the awareness of things ill done and done to others' harm which once you took for exercise of virtue. Then, fool's approval stings and honor stains. From wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds. Unless restored by that refining fire where you must move in measure like a dancer. So we move from Pentecostal fire to purgatorial fire. And that's progress. It's be, be, because it's, it's an alternative. It's moving from the fire of hell to the fire of love. Eliot's estimation of, of a great poet is one who can uh, bring into resolution all of the issues that have been raised in the in the body of his poetic work. And so, as Eliot approaches the end of the fourth and final quartet, which really is the culmination of his strictly poetic uh, work, though he does verse plays after this, as he approaches the end of the quartet, he begins to um, call to mind with very small little hints features of his poetic enterprise going all the way back to Prufrock and, uh, and, and brings them into the resolution at the end of the poem. So uh, we will do that a little bit ourselves. What I would like to do is start today by quoting a passage that I quoted our, in, on our first session on the quartets. And it's from Eliot's essay on Pascal. He wrote... The majority of mankind is lazy-minded, incurious, absorbed in vanities, and tepid in emotion, and is therefore incapable of either much doubt or much faith. And when the ordinary man calls himself a skeptic or an unbeliever, that is ordinarily a simple pose, cloaking, an in, uh, cloak, excuse me, cloaking a disinclination to think 
anything out to a conclusion. And as we said when we read that the first times those weeks ago, uh, for this uh, for this dapper uh, erstwhile Englishman to tell us that we are uh, uh, that that our emotionality is tepid uh, comes as some uh, somewhat of a shock to those of us who have spent half a lifetime trying to let our hair down. Uh, but that's his estimation of the situation. In a later essay, essay entitled "The Social Function of Poetry." He takes the matter one step further and touches on what, in fact, the quartets touch on. He writes this. Much has been said everywhere about the decline of religious belief. Not so much notice has been taken of the decline of religious sensibility. The trouble of the modern age is not merely the inability to believe certain things about God and man which our forefathers believed, but the inability to feel towards God and man as they did. A belief in which you no longer believe is something which to some extent you can still understand. But when religious feeling disappears, the words in which men have struggled to express it become meaningless. It is true that religious feeling varies naturally from country to country and from age to age, just as poetic feeling does. The feeling varies even when the belief, the doctrine, remains the same. But this is a condition of human life. And what I am apprehensive of is death, which is, in quote, which is to say, uh, the death that comes from the collapse of feeling and therefore of the possibility for religious feeling. So it's not only that we're emotionally tepid, but that that goes to the core of the whole question of our religious lives. Well, he's going to take that up again in the last three um, sections of the last quartet, Little Gidding. So let me start with the first passage in that, in, in section three. There are three conditions which often look alike, yet differ completely, flourish in the same hedgerow. Attachment to self and to things and to persons. Detachment from self and from things and from persons. And growing between them indifference, which resembles the others as death resembles life, being between two lives, unflowering, between the live and the dead metal. And that's the problem that his poetry has been addressing since the very beginning. And it is, ironically, or maybe even uh, as we might have imagined, it is the, it is the problem that goes so uh, into the into the core of the modern predicament that we didn't even know it was the problem. Few people suspected that indifference or uh, tepid emotionality was the problem in the modern Western world. The, the external evidence didn't seem to indicate that that was the problem, and so a lot of people looked at Eliot's poetry and says, "What's all the fuss about?" But in fact, that's the problem he sees, and of course he was accused of being a symptom of the problem, when in fact his poetry analyzes the problem thoroughly, right from the beginning. Sweeney and Prufrock are attempts to analyze that problem in his early poetry. He said these three things live in the same hedgerow, flourish in the same hedgerow. In part one of Little Gidding, part one started with the passage... uh, 
midwinter spring is its own season. Between melting and freezing, the soul's sap quivers. This is the springtime, but not in time's covenant. Now the hedgerow is blanched for an hour with transitory blossom of snow, a bloom more sudden than that of summer, neither budding nor fading, not in the scheme of generation. So that's one blossom on the hedgerow. And the other is, if you come this way in May time, you would find the hedges white again in May with voluptuary sweetness. And that's the other blossom in the hedgerow. And both of those have a role to play in life. One is in the scheme of generation. It is the springtime, maytime, natural blossoming of affection and attachment to the objects of desire. Youth, if you will, spontaneity, love, yearning, ardor, passion, desire, appetites. All of that has a place. And the other is the winter blossom, the blossom of detachment from the objects of desire. Both of those in Eliot's understanding have a place. What does not have a place is this bastard parody of them both, which is indifference. In Burton Norton, he had said the same thing. He said, time before and time after, in the dim light, neither daylight, investing form with lucid stillness, turning shadow into transient beauty with slow rotation suggesting permanence, nor darkness to purify the soul, emptying the sensual with deprivation, cleansing affection from the temporal. Neither plenitude nor vacancy. Both of those, you see, would be fine. Daylight, plenitude on one hand, purifying darkness and vacancy on the other. Both of those have spiritual value for us. But he says, time before and time after in the dim light, which is neither one of them. That's the world we live in, and that's the world that uh, it concerns the poet and to which he addresses his, his, his poetic work. <clears throat> he said that this indifference uh, lives unflowering between the live and the dead nettle, and so I want to uh, raise the question of the nettle just to nuance it a little bit further. In Ovid's uh, The Art of Love, the nettle is a prominent feature in the in the formula for the concoction of the aphrodisiac. So that which arouses ardor and love and passion and desire. That's the live nettle. And the nettle plays another role in Dante's Purgatorio. Dante had, uh, had the live nettle uh, uh, administered to him by Beatrice in the streets of Florence. Uh, the, the, the love God came to him when he saw Beatrice. And then, as a young woman, Beatrice died, and Dante became involved in Florentine politics. Or at least that's how she saw it when he, when he met her again at the top of the Purgatorial Mountain. 
And she, she berated him for forgetting what that inspiration uh, was awakened for and turning to all of these other things, other preoccupations that led him finally to the dark wood. She says to him, Beatrice is speaking to the three uh, virtues. She's not even speaking to Dante. He's sitting there with his head hung and she's talking to the virtues, say, why are you being so hard on him? And so she explains to them in his hearing, the way you would with a child, why she's being so hard on him. The instant I had come upon the sill of my second age and crossed and changed my life, he left me and let the others shape his will. He turned his steps aside from the true way, pursuing the false images of good that promise what they never wholly pay. And what she accuses him of, if we may use Girardian terms, is letting desire become mimetic and becoming involved in conflictual arrangements, primarily in Florentine politics. So we could go back and analyze that her analysis of his situation by saying, he allowed desire to fall into the mimetic pattern and he pursued that pattern and was wise enough to recognize after a, after a, a 10 or 15 years of pursuing it that it was empty. She goes on, filled as you were, speaking now to Dante, filled as you were with the desire I taught you for that good beyond which nothing exists on earth to which man may aspire, what yawning moats, what stretched chain links lay across your path to force you to abandon all hope of pressing further on your way? This biting irony, you see. Because there were no chain links or uh, yawning moats. Uh, he simply was tempted into the mimetic version of uh, his desire. And Dante, after he hears all of this, and it registers immediately with him as true, after he hears all this, he says, I now switch translators from, from uh, John Ciardi to uh, Barbara Reynolds because I, this, I like her passage better here. He says, Such nettles of remorse stung me thereon that of all other objects of my love I hated most what I had most doted on. Nettles of remorse at recognizing that one has allowed one's healthy and necessary ardor and desire and passion to be caught up in the mimetic mess. So, attachment to self and things and persons, which is the live nettle, or detachment from self and things and persons, which is the dead nettle. The, one is the nettle of the aphrodisiac and one is the nettle of remorse. Both have a wonderful play, uh, role to play in the spiritual life, but indifference is between them and is unflowering. Just to pick up on how Eliot had anticipated all of this, we could go. we could turn to almost any page in his poetry and read it. I, and that's virtually what I did to, to provide the following quotations. I opened my book and there they were. Uh, they come from, the, um, from the, uh, the wasteland. And in the wasteland, the problem in the wasteland that's being described is this emotional, it is 
tepid emotionality. And it's a problem that is across the board. It isn't, uh, it's not one that's being suffered by one particular class of people or uh, in the socioeconomic spectrum or something. Everybody is now suffering this disease. So, for instance, to, to in a way go through the spectrum, uh, I've left off one. We could, we could add that easily enough. The Countess, at the beginning of the Wasteland, says, in the mountains, and she says this, you see, with, uh, with weariness in her voice, world weariness in her voice. In the mountains, there you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. Notice, he, uh, j just poetically, he ends that line with the, with the feminine ending, winter, trails off. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. The businessmen crossing London Bridge from the suburbs into the business district, uh, echoing almost verbatim a passage from Dante's Inferno where the souls are, uh, are waiting to cross over into hell. Sighs short and infrequent were exhaled as each man fixed his eyes before his feet. And... The typist home at tea time, her rendezvous with the small house agent's clerk, we've referred to it before. The time is now propitious as he guesses. The meal is ended. She is bored and tired, endeavors to engage her in caresses which still are unreproved if undesired. So that's the problem. The problem is the, is the lack of feeling going to the core of our being, resulting in a lack of, in the incapacity to feel religious emotion. In the 30th canto, the Paradiso, Beatrice said to Dante, the flame of high desire that makes you yearn for greater knowledge of these things you see pleases me more the more I see it burn. So that high desire is a flame, just as the flame of, of a lower desire is a flame. And the paradox is, as Eliot expressed it in East Coker, the enigma of the fever chart, which is that to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. That is to say, the problem is the problem of desire. And we cannot transform that desire until we awaken it. So our sickness must grow worse. Addressing the enigma of the fever chart, Eliot goes on. This is the use of memory for liberation. Not less of love, but expanding of love beyond desire. And so, liberation from the future as well as the past. Expanding of love beyond desire. Elliot is now going to give us an example of how to use memory. Thus, love of country. Now, Elliot wants to raise historical questions. Uh, he wants to invite us 
to understand history in a different way than we understand it. One way of expressing that would be to say, Eliot wants us to, to begin to see history not as it is presented externally to us, but to begin to recognize history as being really salvation history and not political history. And that if we live our lives in political history, as Dante did before he ended up in the dark wood, we really miss what history is all about. So he wants us to take us from political history to salvation history. And he starts with love of country. Thus, love of country begins as attachment to our own field of action. Passion, ardor, commitment, etc. begins with attachment to self and things and persons. Love of country begins with attachment to our own field of action and comes to find that action of little importance. Read Dante, see? Florentine politics. Though never indifferent, a little warning at the end there, and this is what happens so often, is it not, that when we do come to that place of disappointment, we become cynical and miss the opportunity to see something bigger involved there. So Eliot warns against that, though never indifferent.